Well, good morning, Fellowship family. And I need to extend a special welcome to our Highcrest campus. We are always two campuses and one church, but they're going to worship with us in a special way today. And so welcome to you guys. And we are kicking off uh, a series in the Psalms. And I am really excited about this. The Psalms are the ancient songbook of Israel. It's their hymnal. They would sing these songs at different seasons and on different journeys. And what we understand about God's Word is that we don't fully understand it until we see how it points to Jesus. The Old Testament directs us to him. The New Testament introduces him in a special way and talks about his life and his ministry, his death and resurrection, and then about the church that he started. And so our job over these next nine weeks is to get into these, these psalms, these nine that we've selected, and to find Jesus in them. And today, I don't believe that's going to be hard to do. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And while you are turning into Psalm 8, I want to talk to you a little bit about identity. My friend Jonathan Sublett, that was the lead pastor at the Highcrest campus, sent me an article. And the article was from CNN, and it said that 26 million Americans have submitted DNA evidence or testing so that they can understand better who they are. We are a people that really want to know who we are. In fact, in this article, it says that you can now submit evidence for your dog to find out where your dog came from. I don't understand that one, but that's okay. We want to know where we came from. We want to know why we tick. We want to know why we do the things that we do. In fact, I was with my friend one time as he was getting his results. And he could see that he was from a particular village in Germany. And somehow that that told him a lot about who he was. And I didn't understand. But we love to know these things. We want to know where we've come from. We want to understand what makes us up now. We want to know where we're going. We want to understand our purpose. And it's hard. We live in an unprecedented time of having an amount of voices speaking into our lives. We have 24-hour news cycles that are constantly tell us, telling us how we should think and how we should believe and how we should respond. We have these social media things that we allow ourselves to get into that constantly are giving us comments and feedbacks and likes and maybe not giving us likes. And it speaks into who we are, and sometimes we get lost. And I think that Psalm chapter 8 is going to do a really good job of telling us who we are. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 8. Now Psalm 8 is a very small chapter, and it begins and ends with the same verse. And that is a very technical term called an inclusio. Everything else is included between these two bookends. And these two verses are going to tell us our main points. So let's read them. Psalm 8.1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This is the central point of the psalm. This is what we need to understand. And it is that Jesus is worthy to be praised. That's what we need to understand when we're done reading this, is that Jesus is worthy to be praised. And so why? Let's read it. O Lord, our Lord. You'll notice that those two words, while they sound the same, they look a little bit different. One is all caps and one is not. The first one is the word Yahweh. It is the name of God. 
In fact, it was written in a special way so that they would not pronounce it correctly. If you were reading it, it would say Y-H-W-H. It is the name of God. He is a personal God. They are addressing him by name, Yahweh. And then, O Lord, our Lord. That second word is Adonai. It is the word for master. It is the word for sovereign. It is the word for someone who has com- uh, command and dominion over us. And so right off the bat, the psalmist David is saying, O Lord, our Lord, you are in control of us. How majestic is your name. It is not about us. It is about you. And so the rest of this psalm, we're going to try to understand why. Why is Jesus worthy of all praise? Well, the first reason that he is worthy of all praise is that he is our maker. Jesus is our maker. He has made everything that was made. Let's jump back into Psalm 8 and look at the last part of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. What an amazing small little verse. That God is so much different and distinct than us. His glory is not touchable and not attainable. It's not approachable. It is set so far high above us that we can't do anything but give God praise for his majesty. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Your glory is aware we can't even touch it. And then it says in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants. Now we're familiar with that phrase, right? Everyone's heard someone say, out of the, out of the mouth of babes. Right? This, this is where we get that from. Because usually our child has done something cute. right? They've said something poignant. They've said something really astute for a three-year-old to say. And we're like, oh, out of the mouth of babes. Well, here in the text, David's saying, out of the mouth of babies and infants. But it says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Is there any word that we expected less than strength? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, we have weakness. They are completely dependent on us for everything. They are fragile and can get hurt. We don't go to babies and infants for strength. We go to them because they're cute. But the psalmist is saying, our God is so great and majestic out of the mouth of babies and infants. He has established strength. To silence, or he's established strength because of our foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now I know when I read the word avenger, you're expecting the next two words out of my mouth to be endgame. But here you have David, who as a little boy stood in front of the giant Goliath. And was Goliath afraid of five smooth stones? No. Was Goliath afraid of a slingshot? No. What did Goliath need to be afraid of? He needed to be afraid that David came in the name of the Lord his God. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, he has supplied strength. And then in 2 Corinthians, when we read about Paul's weakness, we read again about God's strength. For in my weakness, your strength is perfected. And this is not a shock to us. And then we look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
these heavenly bodies that we go out and look at and wonder, the, the, the galaxies and the stars and all of the things that we see in the sky and in the night sky. They show about how creative and vast our God is. I had a moment this past spring where our family got to go with our extended family to Disney World. And at 9 o'clock every night they have a show. And people sit on the main lawn in Magic Kingdom. And they look up at Cinderella's Castle. Anybody ever seen a picture of Cinderella's Castle? Or seen Cinderella's Castle? It's a huge artistic building. right? The creativity that God gave someone to create that building. And then on that building, they take these images of these movies and these characters and they splash it across. And it's done in perfect synchronization to music. And then at all the right times, the crescendos of the songs, these fireworks go off in the sky. A friend of mine told me at any given time, 16 million lights are lighting up that show. It is a spectacle to see. And yet it is a blimp on a map underneath the handiwork of God's creation. Orlando, Florida is just a blip on a map. It's just a dot. We sit under God's vast creation all day and we understand that he is our maker. We skip down to verse 5 in Psalms. And it says, Yet you have made him, speaking of man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. All of these things that God has dominion of as our master and our sovereign. He has given us dominion over these things. These things that he has made. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the fields, and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever paths along the paths of the seas. God has made it all. But this morning we want to tell you that Jesus is our maker, but Jesus isn't mentioned here in the text. And so let's see why we can say that with confidence. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, we get a glimpse of what this looks like. It says that he is the image of God. He is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Just as when Jesus told his disciples, when you see me, you see the Father. This is what this means. He is the image of the invisible God. When we see him, we see our Father. For by him, in verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He was there and present in creation, and there was nothing created that was not created through him and for him. And in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue that keeps his creation running. He is our maker. And the gospel of John says something very similar in John 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God. And in verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is our maker. And because he is our maker, he is worthy of all praise. His name is majestic above all other names. 
But that is not the only way that we see Jesus in Psalm 8. And the second way we see him is as, is as our model. We see him as our model. Jesus has shown us how to live. Now, if you notice, there is one verse in Psalm 8 that we have not read yet. And that is Psalm 8.4. And so let's go catch that one up. Psalm 8.4 says this. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You can almost hear the incredulousness of David's voice. What is man? Who am I that you would care for me? What are we that you would care for us? The son of man. You are mindful of us. Why? But I want you to notice, if you look down at the rest of Psalm 8, that David doesn't answer the question. He doesn't tell us why God is mindful of man. He's asking a rhetorical question. And David is sitting here, you have done all of these great things for us. You have given us dominion. You have made all of these beautiful things. What is it about us that he cares? I think David knows the reason. But I also want to be very explicit with it. And to do it, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 responds, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see the parallel there to Psalm 8? He said, let us make man in our image and then he begins to give them dominion over the things that he has created. But then he says it again in verse 27. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times in two verses, we get that man and women are made in the image of God. So what does that mean for us? What are the implications of us being the imago Dei, the image of God? Well, it means that you were endowed with God-like glory. That when this world was to see you and to see me, they were not just to see us, they were to see God in us. They were to see us imaging him right back to them. Because we, as male and female, were a perfect image of the glory of God. And that means every one of us that God has made has been given dignity and value and worth because we were made to look like him and reflect him in this world. That means no matter how tall you are or how short you are, it doesn't matter if you are fast or you are slow, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter where you got up this morning, it doesn't matter what your hair looks like, and it doesn't matter the color of your skin. If you are made in the image of God, you are loved by him, and you have value, dignity, and worth. But right after Genesis 1, we get Genesis 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, everything changes. 
Adam and Eve fall dead in a garden because they went their own way in rebellion. They ate of the fruit that they were commanded not to and sin and death and destruction have entered our world. And now the evil one, the devil, has free reign and he has enslaved us and has changed very things about us. And now when you see me, you don't just see the image of God in me, you see my flaws. You see how different I am than you. You see things you don't like because that image of God has been defaced. We see things that we don't like and don't want to see, even though that image of God is still there. There's nothing that we can do to get rid of it. But we now live in a very broken and dark place. And so now I hear different words of David in Psalm 8 when he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. Have you seen us? Have you seen the way we treat one another? Have you seen the way we talk to one another? Have you seen the way we hate one another? What is man that you would give him all of these blessings? Well, from Genesis chapter 3 for the rest of the story, we see why God is mindful of man and what God is going to do about it. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And I invite with you, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. In Hebrews chapter 2, well, starting in, the, in chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews, the entire point of the book is that Jesus is greater. He's going to go through all of these things. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than the priestly system, the sacrificial system. Jesus is greater than anything that you could put your mind around. And in chapter 2, we get a glimpse of his view of man. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. It was not for the angels that he has designed and done all of these things of which we are speaking. In verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. And I just think that's hilarious. Somewhere. Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We get that question again. What is man that you care so much about him? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see the world yet as it's supposed to be. We still see the brokenness. We still see the defaced image of God. And so what is God going to do about it? But we see him. I love that word, but. It changes everything on a dime. But. We see him. Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus, who is greater than the angels, for a little while was made lower than the angels? It means that he came and he looked like us. He came down. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into our skin. He stepped into our existence. He has modeled how we will live. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. 
In verse 2, he said, you have crowned him with glory and honor. In verse 9, we have seen him crowned with glory and honor, but why has he crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He has been given a crown of glory and honor, and that crown of glory and honor looked like a death that he died on our behalf. And we skip down to verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did he come down and partake in our existence? He did it so that he could defeat sin, that he could defeat death, that he could defeat the grave, and that he could defeat the devil. No longer will we have to live as slaves to the evil one and as slaves to sin because he stepped down and modeled how to live because he took the crown of suffering upon his head. He has set us free once and for all from the grip of the evil one. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, in verse 16, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. How much does he care about man that he became one? And I want to take you back to Psalm 8, verse 2, where it said, Out of the mouth of babies and infants. How did Jesus come into this world? As a baby and as an infant. And out of the mouth of that baby, that infant, God has established strength because of the enemy to silence the foe and the avenger. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. Jesus has modeled how to live. He has shown us how we can overcome by trusting in the one that God cared for and the one that was mindful of, the one God sent to take on that crown of suffering by trusting in him and then modeling our life after him. We understand why he is worthy to be praised. So what is our response what is our response to this God who is our maker? Who is our, what is our response to this God who has modeled for us how to live? And I could only come up with one word, and that word is humility. Our response to this God is humility. And I want to talk about humility in two different forms. The first is that I am who he says I am. We sing that song. It's kind of catchy. It rolls right off our tongue. I'll spare you from singing it to you. But he says, I am who he says I am. And wouldn't it be great if we believed that? But so often that is not where our brains go. It is, I am who my spouse says I am. Or I am who my coworkers say I am. Or I am who Facebook says I am. 
when I started um, and going down the path of ministry, I went to seminary and I had these great plans. I was going to be in academia. I wanted to be a professor. And it didn't take me very long to realize that I was not smart enough to do that. That I could not read fast enough and I could not retain that much information. So I had to find a better plan. And so my second plan as a young, energetic seminary student was that I was going to find a place to go where they were going to let me study all day and then teach on the weekend. Because, you know, that's what you guys are looking for in 20-year-olds. Because they are so full of wisdom. So I had to find yet another plan, and I found a plan, and that plan was working with children. And that plan brought us to Topeka, Kansas, and I absolutely loved working in the mountain and working in children. It was one of the greatest joys of my life. But I had a misunderstanding of what ministry was going to be. You see, I thought ministry was going to be one great big getting God's word, theology, hermeneutics, discussion, you know, all of these great conversations. And really, in a lot of days, you could sum up ministry in two words, middle management. All right? So you have a task that you have to do. You have to, you have to lead this ministry for children on a Wednesday night or on a weekend and you have to equip and train and raise up and grow this, this group of volunteer people. And that was one of the greatest joys of my life, working with these people. We went arm in arm against the gates of hell for the souls of these kids. And we loved them and we served them and we poured out our lives and our hearts with them. But you know, some of these volunteers you work with, they're just people. And I'm just people. And you're not ever going to believe this, but sometimes they disagree with you. And sometimes they don't think you make very good decisions. And sometimes, you're, just, you're not going to believe this, sometimes they get mad at one of the decisions you make and they choose to walk away. And sometimes they point a finger on the way out because you're never going to believe this. Sometimes we're not kind to each other. And sometimes they say, you know what, I'm not going to be in this thing anymore because you're a part of it. And I wish I could tell you in those moments, when you get those letters or those emails, that I really believe this, that I am who he says that I am. But it's way, way, way easier to believe who people tell you you are. And then after a little while, they say, hey, you've been managing volunteers for a little bit. All of a sudden, you're going to manage staff. And this is going to be so much easier because staff are perfect. They're just people too. And I've loved the teams that I've gotten to serve with. I've gotten to serve with some of my favorite people in this world. But even when you serve with people that you're really close to, you have these instances where you have disagreements And you have things where they're not going the way that you thought that they were going to go. And decisions get made and directions get formed. And people aren't on the same page and there's disagreements. And all of a sudden those feelings come up. And people say things they probably regret saying. And they go places they probably regret going. And things just happen. And I wish in those moments that I could stand before you and tell you that I believe this. That I am who Jesus says that I am as opposed to the people around me. But I am prone, just like I think you guys are too, to believe what the voices around our head say. And on a good day where our fans are our loudest voice, we're having a good day. And on a bad day where the critics are the loudest voice, we're having a bad day. And we vacillate between the two. And in the midst of one of my lowest leadership seasons here, I got a funny assignment from the Lord. 
And that was I had to preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I really believe this was God's little joke to me. And years later, I finally gave in to my friend Bill, who tried to get me to read this book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's by Tim Keller, and he did a way better job with 1 Corinthians 4 than I did. But here's what 1 Corinthians 4 says in a nutshell, and please, this is a paraphrase. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and if you know anything about the Corinthian church, it wasn't really going the way that they wanted it to go. Both sides were upset. Paul was upset with the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were upset with Paul, and Paul is writing this letter, and he says, i got to tell you something, Corinthian church. I don't care what you think. And you're like, really, Paul? Like, that's kind of strong. You don't care what they think? And he goes, I'm going to go one step further than that. It's not that I don't even care what you think. I don't even care what I think. Because what you think doesn't matter and what I think doesn't matter, the only thing that matters to me is what my God thinks of me. It is his commendation and his voice that is going to be the loudest shout in my life. And I realize that this is true. That I am who he says I am. So what does he say about me? Who is Brian that he is mindful of me? Who is Brian that he would care for me? He says, I sent my son to die for you. And all of your flaws and all of your imperfections. I love you. You are my beloved. I chose you. And so church, you are not who Facebook says you are. You are not what your job performance says you are. You are not the current relational status that you have in your life. No, you are who he says you are. He is mindful of you. He cares about you. So much so that in humility, he stepped out of heaven and stepped into our skin. And stepped onto a cross that we might find life. And if that is true... And I believe that it is. That I don't have to think worse of myself. I don't have to think better of myself. I can think of myself just as he does. And then I get to do the second thing, which is even more fun. I have the opportunity to count other people as more significant than myself. This is something I have to do. This is something that I get to do. If I understand who I am before the Lord, and I understand who you are before the Lord, that you are made in His image, that you are made to reflect Him, that when I see you, I get to see my Heavenly Father, I now get to serve you and say, you are more significant than me. I get to say, I'm going to treat you the way that I would want you to treat me, and I get to lay down my life so that you can step ahead. Because I'm not defined by what I have. I'm not defined by where I'm going. I'm not defined by what I do. I'm not defined by the people in my life. I'm defined by my Heavenly Father and there's nothing in this world that I can do to change it. And that means I get to spend the rest of my life going after the people that He loves too. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for the words of your servant David many, many years ago. Father, as he marveled, as he looked around at all of the creation and all of the things going around him, 
As he marveled at your handiwork, and he said, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would care for him? And you cared so much about man that you sent the son of man to this world. And he lived in our shoes. He walked in our flesh and our bones. And he died a death for us that we deserve to die. And he raised to new life. And he is presently preparing a place where we will get to go and be with him. And until that day, I pray that we would define ourselves the way you define us. And that we would spend the rest of our days getting to love the people that you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.